0: Uh, Welcome, everyone, to our CHEST webinar today. Our topic uh, that we're going to discuss is post-COVID fibrosis um, or the delayed pulmonary manifestations of COVID-19. My name is Corey Kershaw. I'll be your moderator today. I'm at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And before we get started, I would like um, to introduce our panel, and we'll start with uh, Sean.
1: Hi, I'm Sean Callahan. Um, I'm at the
2: University of Utah in the Salt Lake City VA. Thanks for having me today. Great, thank you, Deji. Hi, I'm Deji Adegunsoye from the University of Chicago. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: And Mary Beth.
3: Hi, Mary Beth Sholin from the University of Utah, and very happy to be here with my uh, colleagues, and looking forward to our discussion. Great, and Sanaya.
4: Hi, I'm Sania Khan. I'm uh, at the Cleveland Clinic in Abu Dhabi, and very happy to join you guys today for this discussion.
0: Great Thanks, yes, all of you for, for joining us today. So we're going to sort of have a have a conversation, if you will, about um, some of the, some of the things that we're all seeing in our practice um, for patients that have survived COVID-19, of varying severity. And one thing I think that I've encountered in my practice is that we see you're seeing a variety of things. We're seeing people that may still be quite symptomatic, after they've recovered, but maybe not have a lot of objective data to go with that, or the opposite, patients that still have persistent objective abnormalities, but seem to be tolerating them quite well with less symptoms. We're going to talk about these different scenarios and importantly, what we think happens to these patients later on and what are we doing about it. So to start us off, I I thought we would talk a little bit about the patients that that are coming to us with perhaps persistent subjective things, but not a lot of objective data. And Mary Beth, we'll start with you about, you know, is this something that you're encountering in your practice as well? Patients still symptomatic after recovery, but there's still not a lot to explain it.
3: Yeah, I, I would agree that this is something we see quite a bit of. And, and it's really a hard part of our, our clinical experience is to see someone who's suffering and having symptoms, but having a hard time explaining it. Uh, you know, people are telling us that they're, that they're still coughing quite a bit, that they're very fatigued, that their exercise tolerance is, is poor, that they feel short of breath, um, you know, that they might be having palpitations or things of that nature. And all these have to be sorted out um, with clinical data. But uh, I agree with what you're saying is that sometimes the clinical data isn't really congruent with what the patients are telling us.
0: you what about you? Just something that you're seeing in your practice patients – still symptomatic, but we don't really have a lot to explain why.
2: Yeah, exactly. What you and Mary Beth have just rightly said, there seems to also be some temporal variation in the symptoms that we're seeing as well. Early on, after patients have gotten COVID in the immediate recovery phase, it seems that they tend to have a lot of desaturations. Many patients now have pulse oximeters at home, and they come to us with reports of low oxygen saturations at home. But but further out, weeks to months after COVID, they complain about this exertional fatigue, this debilitating dyspnea and exertion with, with just minimal activity. They get short of breath, profoundly short of breath, and that really bothers them. And so we're beginning to see a lot of that, too, in the, in the months after COVID, um, acute COVID.
0: We'll explore that a little bit further. Um, I think to to share some some data for some objective things, I wanted to show um, a slide of a patient of mine. So if you'll bear with me just for a second, we'll do that. I have in front of of your screen here a, a few representative slices of a patient that I followed for about six months after he survived covid Uh, It was a patient who his story is a little odd, but and I won't belabor it, but he he was never admitted, even though he should have been admitted. He um, was quite symptomatic at home, had his own pulse oximeter, knew he was hypoxemic. His managing physician got him oxygen at home, even though he didn't come to the hospital. He survived, but was still quite symptomatic in terms of fatigue and shortness of breath. And I've pointed out on the screen, he had a relatively normal CT scan, but there were a few vague areas of persistent ground glass. And there's one area that you can see there in the left upper lobe of some very vague ground glass opacities. And then on um, another slide, a little more anteriorly in the left upper lobe, again, sort of some peri, peri airway ground glass opacities, but the patient really had nothing else. And you know, a lot of difficulty in managing this sort of thing when someone has a essentially normal scan, but they're describing hypoxemia. You're even documenting hypoxemia, but it doesn't, it's way out of proportion to what you see on the CT scan. Um, Sean, we'll, we'll go to you. So, is, what do you do in this scenario? You have a patient who sees you in clinic, symptomatic but you don't have anything on radiograph at all to explain the patient's hypoxemia or their degree of shortness of breath. You you take
1: it seriously. Um, I I think that you ask for, um, make sure that your, your CT interpretation is, is great. You'll put them through, um, pretty extensive pulmonary function tests. And then, um, one one thing that I've I found uh, a bit humbling with all this is COVID spared no one, um, you know no, no age group was spared. So sometimes we have very young people who come in who are really dysmic and you walk them down the hall, they don't desat. It might be that you need to walk them several flights of stairs. They have a good baseline, um, so you're you have to push them a little bit harder to assess for hypoxemia or uh, you know jumps in their heart rate, blood pressure, etc. Um, but it can be hard.
0: Indeed. Deji, what about PFT changes? You know, the patient, again, we're describing this patient, you know, not a lot of objective data radiographically, um, but they're still very symptomatic. Do, do you have you found these patients having PFT changes when you work them up in your practice?
2: Yeah. So some of them do have PFT changes. Not all of them though. Like to Sean's point earlier, uh, you do want to take patients seriously, even in the absence of objective PFT changes that these patients may have. And and what we are seeing is a lot of times when they do have PFT changes, they are often linked to objective data on CAT scans. I'll just share my screen really quickly just to show uh, some of the examples that we might have been seeing. So this is a patient who actually had restriction on his PFTs, but to go with that, On the CAT scan, he also had features of fibrosis, the typical reticulation that we see, traction bronchiectasis, and a little bit of ground glass opacities as well. This individual did have uh, requirements for supplemental oxygen at the time of discharge. So it's not unusual to find features of restriction where the forced vital capacity is actually much reduced compared to what it should have been. But there are those who do not have uh, uh, overt PFT changes like what I just showed you. Again, on the screen is an individual on the left-hand side, a middle-aged female who uh, really had a history of no other uh, comorbid disorder before she got COVID. And the PFTs that were performed afterwards in the post-COVID phase showed preservation of all her long volumes and most of her flows, except for the meat flows, the FEF 25 to 75, which as you can see was out of keeping with the rest in that it was really diminished. Uh, below that is another lady in her 30s who also had exactly the same picture with a reduction in her meat flows as well. There's been talk uh, at many centers now about the, the small airway disease component that occurs in the post-COVID phase. And, and these may actually be uh, amenable to treatment with bronchodilators. On the right hand side of your screen is a teenage actor. This is a young gentleman who came to us with preservation of his lung volumes, except for the meat flows, which were out of keeping with everything else that he had. This gentleman was an athlete in school, uh, an avid runner, he runs very, very uh, long distances. And he came to us about a year after getting COVID with profound disney on exertion. He couldn't do what he normally would do before. But his mid flows that were diminished seemed amenable to bronchodilator therapy. And he gets tremendous improvement when he uses bronchodilators. So that's an example of uh, the the... PFT changes that we typically would see. Sometimes they may be accompanied with objective uh, lung function impairments in other parts of the PFTs, but also with CT changes, but not not all the time.
0: It's it's really an excellent example of that, the patient who's um, well conditioned, reasonably preserved PFTs, but you find these little nuances here and they're very, very symptomatic. Sonia, I want to bring you into this also, you know, you practice in a different, different part of the world than, than some of the rest of us. And I think it'd be really, uh, it would be really helpful to hear what your experience has been and maybe perhaps a different um, population, especially in the scenario of the patient's symptomatic, normal looking tests, normal PFTs, normal CT scan.
4: So, you know, so we're exactly seeing the things that you guys are seeing and, you know, um, what makes it harder uh, is when, you know, whether somebody gives you Very precise and uh, precise symptoms versus non-specific symptoms, it's just as hard because you really really have to split hairs to um, get into the the, the details of it. So, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I had, again, a young conditioned boy who actually had just mild to moderate disease managed at home. And this was with the Omicron wave. And... uh, nothing home to write about, but just had profound shortness of breath, which started as, as as just dyspnea at all times, obviously went through all the investigations, really nothing objective, no no bronchodilator steroid treatment, nothing really helped him. The steroid may have helped him a little bit, but he wasn't sure. And then in the, in the end, his symptoms actually came down to something really specific, which were that he became short of breath when he would lay down, like he couldn't sleep at night because he was short of breath. And so, you know, obviously, you we will start from your um, sniff tests, and and you know, eventually, of course, uh, again young conditioned guy with really nothing objectively for us to hang our hat on. And then we got our neurologist to, to do a diaphragmatic EMG on him. And sure enough, he had reduced uh, diaphragmatic velocities. So um, keep, you know, so uh, again, this is something we would have never really pursued unless it was, you know, a young person who was really persistently impaired, uh, debilitated from a very specific symptom in the end. So like like you all said that this is, uh, Post-COVID respiratory distress, almost always something is going on, whether we, we can pick it up physiologically or radiographically, is it really all depends on what our collective expertise is, is, is how you eventually get to the diagnosis.
0: This really brings something into the conversation that I don't think many of us would have thought about is, you know, something not pulmonary related, something neurological. Has, has anyone else experienced that before, Mary Beth?
3: Yeah. I mean, I was thinking as we're talking and and sort of what Dr. Callahan mentioned about this as being a humbling disease that it affects everyone. It's also a humbling disease as us as pulmonologists, because I think our standard workups that we have done for a long time are are, are proving to be inadequate. Right. And we have to think uh, deeper, right. We have to think about that mid flow that we oftentimes will ignore. We have to think about the neurologic manifestations. We have to think about, you know, what cardiopulmonary exercise testing might tell us that's not a test we commonly pull out. You know, we usually use that test to exclude, you know, we can't figure out the reasons of dyspnea, but when we're doing these pulmonary exercise testing, and that would be my experience, we start to find that patients have abnormal patterns of breathing. They're doing some rapid shallow breathing. They may have a little bit more CO2 retention showing us that they have some hypoventilation. Um, there's some, maybe some circulatory impairments. Um, so we we do find these very subtle changes that um, in, in the post COVID state that I think we're still challenged to understand uh, what, what COVID is exactly doing. And I think small airways disease as a beautiful example that Deji gave is something that is very elusive. Um, it's hard to diagnose, um, but we have to think about it. So yes, I would agree that, that I'm having the similar experience and, and I'm, I'm having to dig deeper into our toolbox of, you know, diagnostic tests to really sort out what patients are are, are presenting with.
0: Um, there was something that occurred to me while we were describing these sort of outside of our normal workup um, approach to these patients. And we shouldn't forget about the hypercoagulability that these patients have. That's just, that's just part of COVID. And I think there's, there's varying literature out there about how long that hypercoagulability um persists and are, are we missing something? Sean, what what is your threshold to look for things like that? Pulmonary embolism, let's you know say the patient who may have had an undiagnosed pulmonary embolism, but is still but is symptomatic persistently. When when do we need to start looking for that?
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, I don't know what the right thing to do is. Usually what I do is based on how sick they are or how sick they were. Um, so if they were hospitalized, I have a pretty low threshold to um, go searching for uh, a clot if if somehow they made it through the hospitalization without getting the CT pulmonary angiogram or venous duplex. Um, I think it's interesting. I mean, we we saw really high rates of clots um, early in COVID, and in recent years, big multi setter trials, we're not seeing the the rates quite as high as they they used to be. So. Um, I maybe um backed off a little bit searching aggressively, but, you know, practically speaking, most of the time when these people have made it to my clinic, they've already had some sort of evaluation. Um, that said, if they were strictly outpatient, the, it's still possible, but it's pretty unlikely looking at some of the the big studies that have been going on at multiple institutions over the last year or two.
0: So usually just based on whether they're hospitalized or not. The threshold being the severity of the disease would, yeah. would have driven that. Yeah. Um, it it certainly is worth remembering. Um, I, I I don't know, you know, it, it, what about the others. Do you guys, have you guys seen anybody with you know an undiagnosed PE before they presented to your clinic? Has that happened to anyone? Sonia, you are shaking so, your head? Yeah.
4: Yeah. So I actually we we made a diagnosis on a pretty healthy young guy of COVID retrospectively. He had actually come in with pleuritic pain no constitutional systemic symptoms and he actually had uh, a pulmonary angiogram just because he came to the ER and he got a pulmonary angiogram that's why it was picked up and uh, just at that time it was the policy of the hospital for everyone to get a COVID test who came into the hospital and that's how his COVID was picked up. Um, and, you know, like Sean, I think we've all ebbed and flowed with our interest in therapeutic anticoagulation and, and our interest in looking after thromboembolic disease as well. But uh, I think. I shouldn't say it's safe to say, but I think we're reasonably comfortable in saying now that at least anyone who's had outpatient mild to moderate disease that we can look at them with the same uh, <clears throat> uh, with the same eyes as you would anyone in the general population for for as a as a pretest probability for thromboembolic disease.
2: I Agree with that, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna just comment on that real quick. I think what, what Dr. Khan said is really accurate. We, we gotta remember that these are real patients with real comorbid disorders. And, and we have a ton of guidelines beginning to, to emanate in the, in the post COVID era for the acute phase COVID patients in the hospital population. But, but for the post COVID population, we don't have a ton of data to guide us in that, in that realm. And so we should remember that these patients are real patients. They have, they're, they're prone to comorbid disorders like anybody else. And so when we encounter pulmonary embolism or DVTs in these individuals, accurately and appropriately working them up for risk factors, I think is really important. So looking for the lupus coagulants, the cryptic malignancy that may have been undetected, and other factors that may have been, made them more prone to getting uh, these blood clots, I think would be very helpful in the population as well. And that has been our practice at UChicago.
0: Maybe we're too focused on the covid part of it then, you know, instead of thinking about other things, you know, I, I, I agree. You know, we, we think so much about what's happening in the inpatient arena, some of these outpatient things will carry over and we need to think about some other things. Um, Mary Beth, I want to come back to something that you said earlier about, um, CPAP. and how much of what we're seeing here is not necessarily a, a true pulmonary manifestation of disease, but just the this crippling debility that a lot of these patients have. Um, so is your threshold, you may have mentioned this, your threshold has changed perhaps um, for um, for checking CPAD. And Deja, you showed some slides, um, I think earlier, about some data with this that might be worth sharing um, for the group.
2: Yeah, so th- these are, I just put on the screen slides that we see just to maybe Beth's point earlier on about um, the, the chronic fatigue syndrome that occurs in our patient population with post-COVID. And, and in our B to work them up more carefully, looking for the source of the fatigue, we're beginning to see some uh, evidence or data that might suggest some impairments on their cardiopulmonary exercise testing. Uh, many of these individuals do have preserved lung volumes, as I showed earlier on, but despite relatively mild or even no lung function impairments, they start to have very rapid breathing uh, very early in the process of performing this cardiopulmonary kind of pulmonary exercise testing. Uh, their minute ventilation appears to be diminished at both the anaerobic threshold and, and the VO2 max when the oxygen uh, extraction is, is maximum during the test, which is very similar to what we see in patients with pulmonary hypertension and those with uh, unspecified dyspnea. Uh, and so we wonder what, what is driving this. There has been some talk about this being neurologically mediated or other uh, cytokines that might be accounting for this, but we do see these uh, features in our post-COVID population, and it's really difficult to uh, tease apart what is, what is the underlying cause for this. But overall, a lot of our patients seem to have this uh, severely diminished minute ventilation, uh, despite relatively preserved uh, cardiac responses.
3: Yeah. And I, I've been, I have been influenced by literature such as this and the, and the series out of Mount Sinai that showed that 88% of patients that they did that had dyspnea post COVID and did a a CPET had abnormal breathing patterns, this rapid shallow breathing. Um, And so the, the, the literature is really influencing me to think about getting these tests done earlier and, and helping the patient understand what, what is occurring. And I, I, you know, that, they, that they're not making this up, that they are actually, you know, experiencing a different breathing pattern. And then I think it's important to the longitudinal data that that's going to be forthcoming to say who's, you know, how are they going to recover and give being able to give them some reassurance that recovery is coming. And, and a large percent of these patients do recover, but I think we're still waiting for data to say what the ultimate outcome will be uh, for patients that are experiencing this subjective dysmia.
1: May, may I ask a question of Deji and Mary Beth? Um, like, what what would be the optimal timing of doing a CPET since this is such a, you know, a dynamic recovery for patients? Um, I, I, like, do you do it a few months after discharge, a year after discharge? It's just hard.
3: It's hard to say. I mean, the series that I'm referring to was anywhere from three to 15 months after their co- acute COVID infection. So my, my thinking would be that, um, and this is just, uh, a possible, you know, skeleton rubric that we could all discuss. But my thing would be, you would, you know, do the, do the workup for the re- usual reasons or shortness of breath that we've talked about, you know, the pulmonary function testing and looking for clot and that, you know, looking for cardiomyopathy, things of that nature. But when, when the, the dyspnea persists and we, and um, that might be the time to bring in that CPET, And I think the timing of that might depend on when the patient presents, you know, how long it takes you to do the evaluation, how severe their symptoms are, et cetera. But I think in that, you know, three to 15 month window, I don't know what you would think.
2: No, absolutely, I agree. There's a lot of temporal heterogeneity in the time which patients present to us with clinic, in clinic. But but the way we have done it is when is a test most likely going to be valuable? When is it likely to show you the most results? It typically is when the patients are most symptomatic. And so we typically perform this test when the patients are at the height of their, their symptoms, uh, the of fatigue I talked about. And so when, when, we, when they come into to us with these profound symptoms, we typically perform the test then, and hopefully we get some meaningful results. I will say this with a caveat that not all patients... With fatigue tend to have this exact same manifestation there are those who come to us with absolutely normal cpets and so then you have to look for other causes for their fatigue or this there as the case may be
0: it really this great discussion really brings me to the next point is what do you do and so we see these people we've done a very thorough workup. we've spent a lot of time and we've maybe gone down the cpet route when we were really stuck how do you manage this shortness of breath? And I think it's really what we've sort of focused on here a lot is, you know, not we haven't talked so much about cough, but let's just let's continue the discussion about shortness of breath. The patient's persistently distant. We've done everything we can do. We may have identified things here and there. What, what's the approach? What? How? Since we don't have a lot of objective support for the, you know, for why. How can we help? Sean, let's start with you.
1: Uh, it's, it's tough. I mean, I think it, it comes down to what do you think is the leading cause of their, their dyspnea. Um, I think what we see in a lot of these patients is it really is debility. And, and, and a lot of those patients, it's really just trying to meet them where they are and increase their physical activity. If they can, uh, be, they can qualify for pulmonary rehabilitation to get them into that, encourage them to go out for walks with their friends with whatever. Um, if, if, you know, it's, it's a blessing and a curse, but if you can find something um, else to, to go after, such as um, uh, small airways disease, uh, it's cardiac limitations, whatever, you obviously go after those. Um, but it, it's tough. I'm, I'm curious what other people are, are doing. I find it really challenging.
0: Sonny, what do you think about this? What, what is your what is your approach to this patient? You're really struggling with symptom-wise You're not getting anything from them, unfortunately. What do we do?
4: So, uh, you know, everything, of course, that Sean mentioned, and and it's a real struggle. um, A few things that I find are are helpful. So one thing I would say that I think that the work from home thing, which we had at least in our country for almost two years for most institutions, um, apart from hospitals, I don't think that helped the recovery of these people, uh, you know. So they overall were just, you know, a reduced mental health, physical health, and then COVID on top of that. It it we we saw those people actually linger on and on and on for much longer. So there's the, something has to be said about physical activity and trying to get back to it. And uh, really, you know, in the end, so another thing, and I mean, that's anecdotal, but you know, the functional medicine folks, I believe there's a lot of functional medicine literature out there, you know, particularly, you know, for folks who've especially had Antivirals or antibiotics or steroids and all, um, you know. So steroid myopathy or, or is, is somewhat. Sometimes we feel in the higher dose uh, uh, population may actually be helping them overall, uh, hurting them more than helping them overall. So we tend to uh, taper our steroids much faster once you know that you're not getting the desired effect, and uh, you know. So everything from. Changing what you eat to probiotics to to, to tons of uh, omega-3, B6, B12, zinc, vitamin D supplementation. You know, uh, you know. Obviously, the extreme of it is gluten-free, no beef, and uh, uh, you know. So there's there's really the functional medicine world has really really exploded with this, and we happen to actually work someone with someone who is very actively interested in functional medicine or neurology, and he's he's for for years he's Work for you know chronic pain, headaches, and uh, uh, that that's where his area of interest is. And he actually became really active during this time. And we found that he was actually very. However, whatever uh, 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 programs he'd set up for them, the patients actually did benefit. And you know we all asked each other how much of it was just going to be improvement that was temporally related versus something actually working. But you know physical activity, rehab those who can do it, and, and just really trying to get your life back on track, really, uh, whether it's emotionally, physically, nutritionally, that that's, that that's it, yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah, I was gonna to add to that, I think uh, what Dr. Khan said is accurate, actually. I, I was also gonna to add to that, that for our approach has been to take, a, for a moment, the spotlight away from COVID to other factors that might be going on. Uh, And for us in clinic, the most, the two most common symptoms that patients present with is the exertional dyspnea and fatigue. Those are by and large, the most common presenting symptoms that we see. And so we try to address Underlying comorbidities that might be uh, ongoing in the patient. For many of them, it's an acute recognition of a chronic problem, and so addressing things like anemia that might be underlying, hypothyroidism that might be contributing to fatigue, those typically give us a high yield in a short term. And um, then, you know, addressing things that we don't, we're not really sure about. We also tend to uh, put a lot of emphasis uh, on pulmonary rehabilitation on uh, fixing things like comorbid disorders in terms of uh, bronchodilators that might be existing, uh, uh, bronchodilator for for bronchoconstriction that we said earlier on in terms of meat flows and small airway constriction. And also in addition to that, uh, weight loss has been very, very helpful. Most of our patients have been at home for the last two to three years, and they've packed on a few pounds like myself. And so it's not unusual to see patients improve with a little bit of uh, weight loss uh, over the next uh, few months from the time it presents us in clinic. So addressing some of these little things do go a long way in helping them feel better. It doesn't sound like there's an easy fix. I mean, yeah. it requires a lot of help, right?
3: Right. And I just want to make one more comment and that I think the data is still forthcoming as to recovery. I think one of the things that we talk about is, is giving them some hope that you know, this is this should pass. I mean, we can't say that it's worth 100%, but the majority of people continue to improve. So giving that reassurance, I think can be helpful as well. And I think we gotta keep our eye on, you know, the, the, the uh, long hauler studies that are happening, the big NIH recover study, et cetera, to really be able to inform patients of what they can expect. That, that, that insecurity of what to expect can be very uh, stressful.
0: Does anyone um, bring in psychiatry or psychology, neuropsychology into your in, into your care of these patients?
3: Uh, our long haulers clinic um, here at the university of Utah depends have, they have a social worker and they, that's part of the, the recovery plan is that.
0: Um, it's, so. it's, there's a lot to this, you know, and, and I, and I, I agree. It, you have to have multiple people helping out here um, because it's not, it's rarely just one thing. Right. Um, any other comments about that before we move on to, um, to another topic?
1: Should I'm just going to make one comment to jump on uh, what Deji said uh, about uh, weight loss. I mean, absolutely, that's what we see in a lot of our patients. Um, I see quite a bit of our people who made it through the the ICU, and um, you know, I took care of them in the ICU, and then I see them on the other side in clinic. And a lot of them have had profound weight loss, um, and they need to go the other way. Um, some of their dyspnea is just they're just super weak, and they've lost a huge chunk of their muscle mass, which we know from prior. Um, you know, longitudinal ICU studies is common. Um, so don't neglect the, the weight loss that they've, they've had. It's something that I'm frequently forgetting as a pulmonologist, but it's a big aspect of their weakness.
0: It's, this is a great discussion, everyone. Let, let's move on to um, another, you know, sort of the second part of, of our discussion, which is sort of the, the, the opposite. patient with objective manifestations and and usually we're talking about ct scan changes and you know a patient's going to want to know what um you know what's going to happen to me am i going to develop you know everyone wants to talk about pulmonary fibrosis you know i i try to avoid that term in my practice because it's confusing with ipf and other ilds but you know that's that's the question the patient will ask and you know let, let's talk about that a little bit. So, what sort of CT scans are we are we seeing? Deji, you've got some great slides there. I think it'd be great to share again if you're um, if you're able to about some of these late CT scan, you know, or persistent CT scan abnormalities. What does it mean? And, and importantly, we'll talk a lot about because I'm sure our audience is going to want to know how do I treat this? Do I treat this? When do I treat this?
2: Yeah, that's a great point, Curry. Uh, one of the most concerning and possibly one of the most drastic consequences of COVID-19 exposure is the possible link to the development of fibrotic lung disease that we've been seeing. And, and we know that pulmonary fibrosis can develop either following chronic inflammation or, or infection, such as COVID, or, or it sometimes it can be idiopathic as well. Like we, we, we see in patients with age associated diseases like uh, uh, IPF, which you mentioned earlier on. What I've shown here on the screen are CAT scans or CT scans from a few of our patients with COVID-19 at the University of Chicago. The top three panels are for the same patient who was a gentleman in his 50s, got infected with COVID in April of 2020, and a few months later developed extensive fibrosis, or fibrotic changes, in the same regions where he had his COVID-related CT abnormalities. And you can see that in the middle of your screen there. Um, the bottom three panels are three different patients, uh, three different individuals who came to us several months after they had had the acute phase of COVID uh, uh, sort of resolved and all of them had extensive fibrosis on their chest CTs. Now obviously this is very concerning, the the, the profound involvement of the lung parenchyma, the symptoms that come with this uh, uh, fibrosis are very concerning but even possibly we don't know if there are long-term ramifications in terms of mortality, lung transplantation risk, and things like that. And so that is is what really bothers us a lot. At present, I would say that the long-term pulmonary consequences of COVID are still mostly speculative. We're just about two to three years in in the course of the pandemic. And so we cannot really assume or speculate uh, without any appropriate prospective study on the ramifications that fibrosis in the lungs carries in the context of post-COVID.
0: And we're seeing a, a, just a real spectrum here of manifestations, the persistent ground glass, the patients who evolve reticulations, eventually to, as you said, you know, a full fibrosis um, phenotype, you know, such as the slide in the bottom right-hand corner. Um, Mary Beth, what do we do? How do we follow these patients? You know, the patient who's, you know, maybe not as symptomatic, you know, the, the person who still has persistent reticulations left over, Um, acute lung injury patterns that are still dangling out there? Do we manage these people like post ARDS fibrosis? What what is your experience there?
3: Uh, My, uh, my experience is it's all, all the above, right? I mean, some of these people will recover and some will go on to progress. And, and I would say that, you know, our ability to predict that is not ideal, um, I, would like to l- let Dr. Callahan comment too, um, because I, I think he's involved in some research in this area, but, but I think that, um, you know, I would say that I follow them closely, um, and, um, support them with oxygen and whatever else they might need. But, you know, we, our therapies are, are, are tricky. So I might pass the floor to Dr. Callahan, who's, who's been thinking about this too.
1: Thanks, Dr. Shullin. Um I don't know that I have a whole lot more sage words of wisdom than that. It's tricky. Um, I think for the most part, I, I treat these patients as if uh, they're, they're post-ARDS fibrotic features. And we know from good prior studies that a lot of these will improve or at least stabilize um, over time. Um, some, I, I do agree that following these people closely because of the unknown is, is really important. Um, so what I do, and I'm really curious what, what you guys do. Um, is typically get PFTs at like a four, uh, uh, six month interval or so, um, and then uh, repeat uh, repeat CT scans and uh, six months or a year. Um, I, I'm really cautious about putting people empirically on um, on medications. I think that's really an unknown in steroids um, and at Ardi- late ARDS yes, or um, have their own. Uh, problems. Um, I do like studies. Like there, there's one um, called NCOV-1 that we're uh, a part of looking at early deployment of in, in patients post, uh, post-COVID um, ARDS, which I think is, um, is a great study for examining this issue. Like, I think there's equipoise about whether these medications will work or not. So doing it in a, a systematic um, manner, I think, is the right way to do this. What do other people do?
2: Yeah. So so the question about treatment is a very interesting one. The, the the question we should be asking ourselves primarily is, what are we trying to achieve with treatment, right? Is it to blunt progression of disease? Is it to ensure resolution of fibrosis? Currently, the, the medications we have on the market are to blunt that progression of fibrosis, the, the declining lung function that we see. And so without objective evidence that shows that these patients are declining, it's hard to throw therapy at them or to profile therapy without an endpoint in sight. And so that's the challenge that we experience typically. Uh, perhaps the, the 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 golden rule or the, the ultimate uh, goal would be to ensure patients who are at risk do not develop fibrosis down the line. So primary prevention if we can. But we don't know yet that we have any medications that can do that. We actually have in a study currently in University of Chicago, a clinical trial looking at um, the value of serolimus as a preventive medication for those who have COVID for preventing post-COVID fibrosis. So it's really hard to know exactly what medications will be valuable. But there are things that we can also look for in the interim. So we know that there are factors that make patients at risk for developing fibrosis. And I'm showing here uh, scans of a patient who had uh, rheumatoid arthritis uh, pre-COVID and post-COVID now had what appeared to be a potentiation of a fibrotic uh, disease, which we see here. But but some patients like what I'm showing on the screen here now uh, are those who had no prior comorbidity at all. Uh, this was a lady in her middle uh, 50s who came to us uh, with COVID, acute COVID, and developed fibrosis uh, shortly after the acute phase of COVID, with rapid progression in in the upper, mid, and lower lung zones that were really dramatic in in the course of her presentation. And so we worry about potentiation of accelerated lung fibrosis or fibrotic-like changes in those with prior risk, right? So people who are on uh, chronic immunosuppressive states uh, or medications, those who have underlying autoimmune uh, diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, those on uh, steroid-sparing agents who may be at a higher risk risk of developing developing fibrosis. So those are the people that we typically should pay a lot of attention to, at least uh, from what we've been seeing, because they may possibly have a more rapid uh, progression uh, of disease and a much more uh, unfortunate uh, outcome if the case may be. But again, it's still very speculative. We really don't have any very carefully controlled clinical trials to help guide us in this landscape at the moment.
3: We've had similar experiences here, almost identical sort of story with stable underlying ILD that just uh, took off with a big exacerbation following the COVID. So that, I think that's a really interesting area for, for research.
0: Sonny, what do you think? Have you, have you, what, is, what is your approach to this problem?
4: so you know so i, I agree with exactly uh, the the thought that what are we trying to achieve in the end so i in i sort of broadly categorize my patients uh, when they they when they come our way uh, from trying to keep someone alive to trying to make them stable to get them to improve and then eventually getting them back to their original quality of life and so um, obviously, all the things that we've talked about in terms of nutrition, oxygen support, uh, steroid use, um, uh, the thing that I uh, hold off for till a little later is antifibrotic. fibrotic certainly if somebody's coming with tremendous fibrotic disease and by tremendous I mean literally eighty percent or more someone who's been treated in the past or has been on high flow oxygen for really long those folks of course we start antifibrotics much earlier on and in and in other I would say moderate type disease will um, uh, I'll wait for about three to six months before we decide that okay someone's plateaued at their improvement and and, and there's really no way of getting them to improve and then by that time you you know it's it's uh basically you have nothing to lose then you sort of go into that overdrive where you say you salvage in every which way and uh, and and see what happens uh but that's really the way i approach it
0: i, I hear a lot of um conservative use of anti um and, and i think my experience is, is the same it's because you don't know you know veggie have made i think you were right on the money. Of, you know, are we trying to arrest the progress of something that we don't know is going to progress at this point? So is that really appropriate or not? No one mentioned steroids, I noticed, um, with this, you know, maybe not for the fibrosis, but for some of those people with persistent inflammatory changes, is, is that part of anyone's practice, at least in that scenario? It's shaking heads. Yes. <laughs> I certainly yeah. want to, yeah, <laughs> want to going
4: We all went, of course, you know, I mean, you know, one of my mentors used to say that no pulmonary patient deserves to die without a trial of steroids. I think we all (laughs) have
0: that mentor in one form or another. (laughs) Yeah.
4: So uh, and and I think we all used our fair share, and then of course we had some data, a large data bank come out, come out of the Leeds group uh, through the NHS, a, a large robust group uh, where they looked at at, at their post COVID population prospectively, and in and, and in the end, uh, the highest dose that they would use would be about 0.5 meg per gig, and and uh, really still doing a rapid taper over three weeks, or, or three weeks on the whole on the larger part of the post COVID population. Uh, with no changes in outcomes in the lower group, lower shorter duration versus the higher dose, uh, uh, longer duration group. So, um, so that's 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 something after which we sort of stepped off the the the, the steroids for a bit. Also, uh, but certainly we have our patients on the uh, on the steroids. But do we really? Take steroids all the way till we see a a, a nice comfortable place uh, for both us and the patient. No, not really. I think we tend to come down much, come off steroids much faster now.
0: Deji, you've got some great slides here too.
2: To yeah, go. so the Ken was right on point. So we 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 often will give patients steroids when they have objective markers That's parallel their pulmonary symptoms with with shortness of breath. And so these are not patients with cryptogenic organized pneumonia. They do have a cause for their their organized pneumonia, for their CT abnormalities. And so we tend to reserve steroids for those with objective CT ground glass nodules or or frank uh, consolidation in terms of uh, the distribution that looks like organized pneumonia. And we tend to give them a shorter course than we would normally do for the cryptogenic organized pneumonia. Now, now will these patients have resolved anyways of steroid introduction? That's a question we can't answer because, again, you need a carefully conducted study to ascertain that point. But we see a, a lot of improvement in terms of excise tolerance, gas exchange abnormalities, and resolution of CT abnormalities with the use of steroids, typically at 0.5 mg per kg uh, for a very short course, again, shorter than uh, uh, the six months we typically will do for those with um, cryptogenic organising pneumonia. So, a matter of the steroid boost in a few weeks and then uh, very rapid taper over a uh, that's at three to four weeks.
0: We don't want to linger the patient on steroids longer than necessary, especially with the debility problem. I mean, I think we may be exacerbating that if this goes on for too long. Correct. Um, Any other comments from from anyone about, about this problem? So I I agree that steroids have a place, but a very specific place and we have to um, really watch the time because it, it, Without an objective marker, you're you're really going to be spinning your wheels with with prednisone in those patients as you come off. Um, this has been a really wonderful discussion from everyone. I think from from top to bottom with with all of our topics. Um, we in the in the few minutes we have left, does does anyone have any you know any other comments about you know this this challenge we have with um. With these you know, patients who have manifestations from a subjective standpoint, nothing on scan or, or the opposite, you know, or wh- where do we see the future? What, what do we think, what are we going to learn in the next, let's say, year or two? What do we hope to learn anyway? any way that's going to help us? Sean, we'll start with you about that.
1: Um, uh, two, two things. I mean, to, to Deji's point about um, the small airways disease, I, I think it will be curious to see where these people land. Um, a lot of times after this illness, we'll see, um, peribronchiolar inflammation, but a lot of times people will improve or at least plateau. So I think it'll be interesting to see where where these people end up. And then, um, to a smaller point, um, one thing that we didn't bring up is upper airway, um, totally different uh, than what we have been discussing, but I've had a few patients in clinic who, um, you know, they were intubated in the ICU and prone for a long period of time. That is not good for the upper airway. It causes a fair amount of vocal cord disease and upper airway inflammation. So I've had a few patients who have um, gone to the ear, nose, and throat docs and had some success with surgical procedures thereafter and improved their dyspnea. Got something to think about.
0: Once again, other not typical things that we see in our practice that we have to start thinking about. Um, has anyone else seen that vocal cord issues with these patients? That's, that's actually something I had not thought about before myself. I have not encountered that before. So that, that's certainly something to think about, especially as you mentioned, if there's, um, a small airways manifestation, are we, are we missing something either there or in the upper airway? Um, because that is another, another problem, um, that we probably don't encounter very often and may be missing. So. Any other comments from anyone? I think this has been a really, really great discussion. Um, I think we've covered a lot of material here and um, and it really provided a lot of, um, I think, good background and tools for our audience. Um,
2: yeah, I was gonna say that, that- pending the discovery and approval of new specific therapies for post-COVID pulmonary symptoms, um, we should really rely a lot in the interim on the foundational elements of good living. So great nutrition, exercise, great sleeping habits, and weight loss where patients are on the higher side of, of their weight. I think those things are they've proven trusted tried, tested, and true over the years, regardless of the disease entity. So relying on that in the post COVID phase also would be helpful for our patient population.
0: Okay, everyone, I really appreciate everyone's time today. Um, This, again, I think this was a really productive um, conversation. Um, So again, thank everyone for your time and to our audience, thank you for listening today. And we look forward to seeing you at the next CHESS webinar. Thanks.